in John's Gospel, obviously, where we had the reading from, but it actually appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as well. And you might think, yeah, so what? But actually, outside of the Passion narratives, which is really the week of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and coming to the cross and the resurrection narratives as well, outside of those narratives, John shares little in common with the other Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, Gospels. They're, they're quite different. Um, I often think of Matthew, Mark, and Luke maybe more as a historical account of the teaching and the life of Jesus and obviously his whole life. Whereas John, we often think about, he's, obviously, he's the last one to write, and he's obviously stood back and tried to think more deeply about what this all means. And in John's gospel, what he's trying to really do is, he's trying to say, he's trying to help people understand who is Jesus. Not just the story of his life, but actually who is this man? What is his like, real identity? And that's really what John tries to do. And he does that a number of times in his gospel. Often in John's gospel, if you read the whole thing, as you're hopefully doing between when we started in Christmas and, and Easter, um, John uses a little word. He talks about signs. All right? He talks about signs. And it's almost like he's, he's saying these things happened as a sign. You might have noticed the last verse of the reading. So this, you know, this sign. And it's about John saying you know, this sign is pointing. But it's pointing at Jesus, who he really is. Um, and also in John's Gospel, we also have uh, those very well-known I am sayings, which again are very much there to help us understand Jesus isn't just a man, he isn't just a healer, a teacher. You know, he's the Christ, the Son of God, yet in flesh. And this is what John's focus is, and, and it's such a big thought uh, that John is trying to gra grapple with what's happened, as we continue to do, don't we? When we think about our faith, and as we come to know Christ, you know, it isn't just a, that isn't the end, that's the beginning. We then go on from there to try and realise more and more who Jesus is, and that in him, you know, who the Father really is for us as well. It is a beginning of a journey, and a journey we all continue and that's what John is doing in his gospel. He's just trying to lead us in. So it's not a. Sometimes people look at John's gospel and they go, "This is a gospel for people coming to faith." And of course it is. It's a. Lo it's very easy to read gospel. And I think it's got some beautiful sayings within it. So it is a gospel of people coming to faith. But it absolutely, again, is not a gospel only for people coming to faith. It is a gospel for everybody who then continues to journey in faith as we continue to that. I mean, we'll only really see Jesus as he is in his glory. You know, the scriptures talk about the hope of glory, don't they? And they talk about this wonderful promise we have in the scriptures, that one day we will see Jesus Christ as he is. And this is the journey we all continue to move towards. I always think as well, you know, the reason uh, I say that <clears throat> John doesn't have much in common with the other Gospels outside of the Passion narratives, which comprises about half the Gospel, by the way. Um, <clears throat> but the, this, re this reading today, the feeding of the 5,000, John has included. That's the distinction. You know, there's very little you would find that he has included from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he has included this, and he includes it as a sign. So he's saying this story points you to Jesus. This story tells you more about who Jesus really is. And that's why John's included in his reflective sense. He said, no, that one, that story I really need as a sign in this sense. 
It's a story, obviously, about Jesus miraculously feeding a crowd of well, 5,000 plus souls. Um, now, a bit later in this service, we share the communion, as we do twice a month in this church. And we're reminded, I think, in the communion that we're not just fed by him. In faith, we actually feed upon him. And in doing so, we are blessed both by his righteousness and his promise that we will share in his life. So I want us to look into the story, and I want you this lovely little story to imagine yourself to be part of. You know, so don't stand distant from the story. You know, join, come into the story. Be part of a crowd. Be on the hillside, okay? And watch and look, not just at Jesus, but watch what the disciples do and what, they, what we can learn from that as well. So it's a good imaginative thing to do. I think sometimes we can be rather wooden in our approach to Scripture, but it's good to... I know it was 2,000 plus years ago, but let's get into that story and be part of it. I just want to remind you of that call to worship I used um, uh, this morning when we just first started. The first three uh, lines of it, only the hungry search for bread, only the thirsty look for water. May this be a place, therefore, where, uh, for those who are hungry and thirsty in spirit. So, I need to pay attention to my slides, actually. Here we go. Lovely. We've, the story starts off with a great crowd, and um, <clears throat> the scripture reads, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. And if you read back in the earlier chapter, that's exactly what's been happening in chapter 5. Jesus has been healing many people. It's clearly drawn a great crowd, as it would today. Jesus seems very popular. But we must remember in the Gospels, uh, popularity of itself is not always a good thing. The question that really underlines uh, this, I think, for John, is why are they following Jesus? What are they being attracted to? What are they looking for? Maybe they're looking for another miracle, another novelty, another bit more excitement. Or are they looking to Jesus? Are they starting to wonder for themselves a far more important question, which is, who is he? Who is this man? Now, I'm sure, as with any crowd, there's going to be people there for all sorts of reasons. And Jesus would have been very much aware of that. He was always very much in tune with those around him. Um, and that probably includes also those, his disciples. His disciples were on a learning journey, weren't they? The, the scriptures make that quite clear. They didn't just suddenly have this revelation and they, everything was done. They were very much on a learning journey. And they only fully realized what this was all about after Jesus had uh, died and risen. And this story is partly about a test of faith. And I, I think it's quite interesting that Jesus sets this test uh, for um, one of his disciples. He doesn't just pick on you know, someone who's a stranger who he didn't know. He picks on people he did know, and he says this. When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, uh, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? And then verse 6 says, he asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus obviously clearly 
sets Philip a test. You know, one of his inner circle. But he's testing him because he wants to test the depth of Philip's own faith, the depth of Philip's own understanding about who Jesus is. As I say, who Jesus is is never something we can fully grasp. But we can come closer to that. Philip is named a disciple, as I say, one of the inner circle. And the problem that Philip gives, uh, sorry, Jesus gives Philip is one about, the, uh, just a natural one, about the, the, the hunger in the crowd. And I think Jesus is both attentive to the crowd's physical needs, quite naturally, but also that Jesus is very much aware of their spiritual needs too. So I think the test, in a way, has an external dimension and an internal dimension to it as well. Now, we all are probably quite good at solving problems. In our daily lives, we all have to deal with problems, problems, problems sometimes. They seem to never end, don't they? And Philip's no different to that. But I think we can learn from how he goes about problem solving. The first way he seems to uh, want to solve problems, sorry, I'm, I'm behind on that one. Um, it's actually not recorded by John, but it's certainly in the other three Gospels, so I'll read it from Matthew. As evening approached, the disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages by themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And here's the first strategy in problem solving, I think, for many of us. How do I get rid of it? How do I avoid it? You know, the, the thought of the, you know, putting it under the carpet maybe comes to mind. You know, sometimes rather than dealing with a problem, uh, we'd rather avoid it. Um, you know, tuck it away, dispose of it, cover it up. But Jesus is clearly not having that. In the text, he quickly sets them straight. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. In other words, you fix it. Your problem And then what happens, Philip then moves on. He goes, okay, it's my problem. How do I fix it now? And here's, here's, this is another quite worldly example of how we tend to fix problems. And this is not just in our personal life, by the way. This can often be in our church and corporate life. We can solve problems like this. And what obviously, in verse 7, Philip answers him. He says, eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to even have a bite. And obviously, clearly what he's thinking is, how can he buy his way out of this problem? How can he throw some money at it and uh, deal with it, get, be rid of it. And the world goes round on this. This is the world we live in, and it does go round on this basis. And even in church life and, and our personal life as Christians, we can sometimes find ourselves trying to throw money at problems um, rather than actually want to go deeper with the Lord with them and try and understand really what the Lord is trying to, to help to draw out of us in it. In one sense, money keeps us personally uh, uninvolved. We can, as it were, distance ourselves from a problem and give it, in one another sense, to others by buying others' involvement. And I think first of those, those first two ways of problem-solving that the disciples in, employ are ones that I certainly can identify with quite easily. When I think about when a challenge comes into my own life, what's my initial reaction? Well, avoid it, get rid of it, be rid of it. Um, rather than really seek the Lord and try and understand maybe what the Lord is trying to do something, trying to help me 
deepen my faith, grow in my faith in how I come to him first rather than just solve it in a worldly sense. But then it changes. So we have those first examples, which are quite worldly examples, but then it does change. The story changes, and, and, and it turns to Andrew, um, Simon Peter's brother. And in verse 8, another of his disciples, Andrew, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves, two fish, but again, how far will they go amongst so many? And this is quite a different approach to solving a problem. Rather than looking to just avoid it or give it away or let someone else hand it, handle it, Andrew looks into the community of people gathered on that hillside. They're no doubt a fairly ragtag group, maybe not a great deal of wealth or possession amongst the whole lot. So you could ask him, why did he bother? From a worldly point of view, the means were not obviously there on the hillside. Why would he even bother to look around? And yet in that group, there is a small person, a mere boy, who has but a little food, a few barley loaves and these two fish. Still, from a worldly perspective, it seems ludicrous. How can something so small be of help? I do wonder, I picture myself again on that hillside, and I imagine if I had been Andrew and I'd spotted these fish and, and these, this bread, would I have dared to suggest to Jesus that this was the solution to the problem? I can imagine the disciples, you know, you lot, rolling around in the grass, laughing, ridiculing me for such a ludicrous suggestion. It's from a worldly perspective ludicrous. But it reminds me of the, the, the widow's might in, in Luke's Gospel. And I'll just read a couple of verses there. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. I tell you the truth, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. So maybe Andrew, unlike Philip, just two disciples, has a little bit more faith in Jesus and is wondering maybe to himself, maybe he's listened to some more of Jesus' teaching, maybe he's paid better attention than Philip. And he's wondering if Jesus could do great things with something so little. I think the different way that Andrew approaches a problem is really important to observe. As I say, he looks into the community uh, for the possible seeds of the solution. He sees a remote possibility. And yet, combined with faith, he is willing to bring it to Jesus. I personally love the, the, that image of the, uh, the seeds of the solution coming out amongst the community. And in one sense, God has already provided the answer. But he's waiting for us to combine that with our faith, our response of faith, in order that he might bless it. Like the widow's might, we have the boy's lunch. This poor, unnamed, insignificant young boy who was willing to give all he had to Jesus. Normally we think of young boys, we think of big appetites. Grandchildren and children. Now it looks like this one's going to go hungry as he hands over his precious lunch to Jesus. But what an offering and what a blessing it will prove to be. As I say, I think when we face problems in our own personal lives and in church life, 
we can be tempted to look for quick fixes in a worldly fashion. And yet so often, God provides us with a problem that we might, he might test our faith so we might know more deeply who Jesus is and who he is in Christ for us. And as he waits in that wisdom, knowing that the, the solution, as it were, there, is there, but the, uh, it is the addition of faith and response of faith that our Lord waits for. 1 Corinthians and chapter 1, verse 26, Paul writes, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things of the world, the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so no one may boast before him. Our worldly eyes turn so quickly to things that are large, powerful, influential, and yet God teaches us to turn our attention to what is small and weak and in world sense unimportant. What God wants most from each one of us is our faith. The little we are, we bring that little faith to Jesus. And again in Ephesians, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine, according to his power at work in us, to him be glory in the church. So one, two, three, but the fourth solution to the problem as I say, is one where this, these small means are combined with uh, the faith of the disciple, alongside the offering of a small hungry boy willing to place what is dear to his heart, well, certainly would be dear to his stomach, into the hands of Jesus, and look to him for the blessing. The blessing of what is in Jesus' hands will be placed into God's hands in that sense, are very little, but can become so much more. Actually, on battery power, you go one more slide down, please, Brian. I won't ignore that, and I move. Don't worry, it's not a problem. So just then, lastly, reflecting on that blessing, Verse 10 of our reading, Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in this place. And the people sat down, about 5,000 of them. <clears throat> Jesus then took the loaves and he gave thanks and he distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. A little worldly means, freely given in faith and placed into the right hands, Jesus' hands, God's hands, can be the source of great things. Jesus blesses the gift and it becomes so much more. Food not just for one small boy, or I imagine the disciples, certainly Andrew took care to make sure he got fed as well, but food for a multitude. The miracle took place in Jesus' hands, not in Andrew's, not in the boy's, but in Jesus' hands with God's blessing, which has the power to turn so little into so much. Our God is a generous God. When he blesses his people, 
if not some mean-spirited action, but an act of generosity, of abundance. An outpouring, which interestingly then Jesus asked his disciples to administer and to distribute. A blessing to all who were present. This sense of overflowing in God's presence, this sense of abundance, then as it were being ministered to all the crowd by the disciples. And we see further evidence of this abundance in that slide. <laughs> I don't know which one I'm on, actually. Ah. Yes, that's it. I'm there now. Thank you, Frank. In the gathering of leftovers, you know, it was abundant because there was so much left over, wasn't there? It wasn't, I say, it wasn't a mean-spirited, okay, you can have this bit, but that's it. He filled them out, that's it. Verse 12, when they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, go gather the pieces that are left over. Nothing should be wasted. So they went and gathered and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the, the loaves and the fish. And in our terribly Western, our Western society that has this terrible aptitude for waste, uh, we see here, you know, God's blessing and God's provision and how even the leftovers are important. They're gathered up so that something or someone else may be fed by them. It reminds us whatever God blesses us with, we need to make sure we don't treat those things lightly. And the last verse finishes with the, the, the sign. Verse 14 says, After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So the feeding of the 5,000 presents us with a wonderful example of God's blessing and provision happening when the little we have is combined with faith and offered to God for his blessing. The story itself focuses on the crowd's physical needs, hunger, to which we can all relate. But John doesn't want that story to end there. He doesn't want us to just go home feeling physically well-fed. He wants us to see who Jesus is. Jesus, without whom those loaves and fish would have remained just that. Five loaves and two fish. He wants us to see Jesus, not just the man, the prophet, the rabbi, the healer. He wants us to see God's son, who through who death, eventual death and resurrection, became the bread of life for our souls too. So this feeding of the 5,000 is a wonderful miracle. But if you only see it as a miracle you, and fail to see the person that stands beside it and behind it, as it were, then it only remains that, a wonderful miracle. But John says this is a sign, a sign to the Saviour, a sign that points beyond the bread, the fish, the disciples, even the small boy, but to Jesus. A little bit later in this gospel, in this chapter, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's me. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Such a passage we'll look at in two weeks' time when I'm back with you. But this is why John's included this, this, this story in his reflective gospel. 
because of this sign. But I think we can learn from the narrative. Hopefully, from, I've written down here, takeaways for today. The food theme, you know, I thought it would follow it through. I think God does give problems, puts problems in our lives to test faith at times. Revealing our faith, sometimes revealing, sometimes we get a problem, don't we, and we recognise our faith is rather shallow or inadequate or unable to face something. And God is not trying to destroy faith. He's always trying to encourage and build up faith. But sometimes through how we deal with problems reveals faith. Will we fix this in a worldly sense? Or will we take the little we have to Jesus in faith and grow in faith? I think the story reminds us of the need to be careful of not being too hasty, not just quickly choosing worldly fixes to problems. As I say, when we, can do, when we do so, we can often just avoid the real problem that God wants us to work with, which is very much often our faith. And God sows seeds for solutions, and often he sows those amongst us. And we have to seek those out and combine them with our response of faith and bring them to him. And we do that these days, because obviously Jesus isn't physically with us, we do that simply in prayer, don't we? It's a call to bring these matters to prayer. To not fix them on our own, but to actually come with our totally inadequate, ludicrous solutions in one way, you know, just five loaves and two fish, but would be willing to come to God in, in, in faith. Because God does bless, and when God does bless, he does so with abundance. We might be mean-spirited at times, but God certainly is not. And you may not have received bread and fish physically this morning, but hopefully this has also allowed you through this story to reflect on the abundance of blessing you have received already personally through your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. So God who feels our hunger, not just our external hunger, but also the inner hunger of our souls, has provided this sign to Jesus who provided himself for us and for our sakes. Amen.